Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Laos is a neglected, under-researched field of history. The established view of Cold War Laos has scarcely changed in half a century. The Royal Lao government was seen as little more than a French colonial creation propped up by the United States, having no nationalism or even political consciousness. Thus, France could claim that Laos in 1945 was not ready for independence, while Thai and Vietnamese leaders would claim it for a new Thai or Vietnamese confederation. The Royal Lao government was seen as having little to no agency and was nothing but an American pawn in the Cold War. So that's an excerpt from Ryan Wolfson Ford's provocative new book, Forsaken Causes, Liberal Democracy and Anti-Communism in Cold War Laos. And this is a view that the book tries to demolish, really, the book challenges the established view that Cold War Laos was a plaything of foreign powers, particularly France, the United States, and North Vietnam. And it does that by mining the writings of the Lao intellectual elite to produce a revisionist history of Laos, which clearly shows the Lao as agents of their own history. The book also reveals a little-known fact of history that for much of the period from 1945 to the communist Patet Lao's seizure of power in 1975, Laos had one of the most flourishing multi-party democracies in Southeast Asia. Lao nationalism, anti-communism, and democracy thrived, and these political ideas were homegrown. Welcome back, everyone, to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Patrick Jory. I teach Southeast Asian history at the University of Queensland, Australia, and I'm co-host of this channel. And today, I'm so glad to be able to talk to the book's author, Ryan Wolfson-Ford. Ryan is Southeast Asia reference librarian at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., Ryan, thanks so much for coming on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to talk about your wonderful new book. Can I start off by asking you how and why you became interested in Southeast Asian history and why did you become interested in the political history of Laos in particular? Uh, Well, that's a great question. I think it goes back to my undergraduate. I was going to a small state school in Connecticut and I was studying American history, but I happened to take a class on Vietnamese history and culture with a alumni of Cornell University, who was a historian of Vietnam. That was Professor Wen Gadkar Wilcox, and he's the one who introduced me to Laos. I would have never thought of studying Laos, never would have, you know, never would have thought of that if I hadn't run into him. And so, you know, many people along the way helped me. I I went to learn Lao in, in the University of Wisconsin at the CSE program. And then I went on to study with Tong Chai Winichukun and Ian Baird. And I think Ian really made the point that there were these 
refugees from Laos living in the United States that were really being neglected and nobody was actually trying to incorporate their story, their knowledge, their experiences into Lao history. And I think I tried to take that to heart, but things changed a lot. I was working on a project on the 19th century, studying Lao palm leaf manuscripts. And to do that, I was working with a Lao refugee in Portland, Oregon for 10 months using the Digital Library of Lao Manuscripts. And I was mainly trying to study the 19th century, but I was very much exposed to my teacher and his experiences in the 20th century Lao history. And he was in exile and he had been away from Laos for over 40 years. And, you know, he was part of what scholars would say is the right wing, you know, an anti-communist, but he was still anti-communist 40 years later, long after any kind of U.S. aid or any kind of ability to even fight. You know, it was sort of a lost cause, but he still was strongly adamant about his feelings. And, you know, that really just had an effect on me. So my teacher's name was Maha Kampui Sisawati. And uh, he just happened to pass away in October of 2023. But, you know, he, it's kind of sad. He spent longer outside of Laos than inside Laos. But all this time, he was still believing in the Royal Lao government and he was a nationalist and he was an anti communist. And I just felt like the way that we were talking about the 20th century did not really explain him, you know, this person who was devoted to this cause of liberal, democratic, anti communist Laos. And, it just was something that I think affected me. Your book seems to me to fit into a, I think what I find an exciting trend in historiography of mainland Southeast Asia during the Cold War, which you call new Cold War studies, which kind of moves away from the earlier focus on the superpowers, the United States, the Soviet Union and China, perhaps to a lesser extent, and gives more credit to the the local political actors. And we've had, we featured actually some of these historians on, on new books in Southeast Asian studies. When you were writing the book, were you conscious of wanting to make a statement about the historiography of the Cold War in, in Southeast Asia? When I was first working on my dissertation, I wasn't really thinking about the Cold War. I was really just thinking about trying to recenter on the Royal Lao government. I didn't even know that my study was going to focus on democracy or anti-communism. I was just focused on what were people in the Royal Lao government side doing and what could I find out about it. And so it sort of gradually came together looking at the sources. But actually, Simon Creek influenced me a lot. We did a panel together in 2019 where he was framing things using new Cold War studies. And that was sort of like a light bulb going off. So that was hugely influential. And I am very grateful for his influence. I also was very much admiring his book, embodied nation, you know, that was just such an influential book for me. And it showed that I think there's uh, really cutting edge ways that you can write about 20th century Lao history. So he was really a model for me to try to work on things the way I was working on, especially intellectual history, I think, was something I was not sure I should try to work on for Laos. But then I read Simon's work and I thought, okay, yes, I can work on this. Can we talk about sources for a minute? One of the arguments that you make in the book is that the Royal Lao government, or the RLG, if we use its acronym, which governed Laos from 1947 until it was overthrown by the Pathet Lao in 1975, you argue it's received a bad press. And part of the reason for that is that after the Pathet Lao took over, they destroyed a large amount of the official Royal Lao government records. And, and this is one of the reasons, I think you argue, that we tend to kind of view the history of this period through a Pathet Lao lens. And you write that this is one of the challenges that you face when, when writing the book. 
can you tell us a little bit more about the source material that you were, were able to use in order to reconstruct this period of the Royal Lao government? Yeah, it's not ideal to not be able to use an archive, but when I was writing the dissertation and the book, I was thinking back to when I was in Laos and I was at the National Library and I asked, you know, where are all the historical documents from this period? And they told me that they used them to wrap fish in the market. And I believe Simon Creek was told the same thing. So they were telling me that this history of the before 1975 is trash, it's worthless, it's rubbish, it's not worth saving for the future and things like that. Only later did I read Catherine Sweet's work and realize that they might have some archival documents, although I think I would never pass the political tests needed to ever have access to that. And, you know, it's difficult to wait. 20 months. I mean, I'm not as well connected as Catherine Sweet is in Laos, and she had to wait 20 months. I, I might have to wait a whole lifetime. So what I did use was publicly available materials. It's problematic not to be able to use an archive. It's sort of a central thing in historical research. Uh, certainly within a government, it, it's so important to be able to see what's going on behind the scenes. But what I had available, I found there were loads of Lao documents written and published in either Lao or French and publicly available. And part of the reason they existed is because there was a public sphere in Laos, there was public scrutiny, and there was a free press. There were all these publications. But on the other hand, I think these materials were sort of neglected. And I think part of that is that nobody really thought that to look at or study the, the intellectual history of the period. And that's kind of strange because the Cold War is such an ideological period. But I think people have a view about Lao that they're not intellectual. Some people have written things like that decades ago and even more recently. And I've heard people say that when they think of Lao, they don't think of them as big readers. That's what one person told me. So I think people have negative ideas about Lao that preclude them from considering intellectual history as a serious topic. Yes. So your book is an intellectual history of Laos during the Cold War, seen, I guess, through the eyes of the Lao elite, especially politicians and, and intellectuals. And there are three big ideas that you discuss in quite some detail in the book, nationalism, anti-communism, and democracy. And of course, obviously, they're all related, but I'd like to, if we can, deal with them one by one. And perhaps let's start off with Lao nationalism. You argue that Lao nationalism flourished during the period of the Royal Lao government. Can you explain to the listener the nature of Lao nationalism during the period and what was driving it? Yeah, it's something I think that not a lot of people, when they look at Lao history, they take as a serious factor in history. McAllister and Brown wrote this book about Lao anti-communism, and they said that Laos had a fundamental lack of nationalism and political consciousness. And I think a lot of Lao scholars think about Laos like this, but I think that's really just misjudging things. And I think, especially when you look at Lao language, Lao offered works you can really understand that there was a lot of nationalism, at least among ethnic Lao writing in Lao or French. But Lao nationalism, from what I've understood, it was greatly influenced by ideas of race and a Lao race. And this was a major idea that was driving things at the time. It can trace back to easily the colonial period, at least the 1930s, and the, the French and Lao at the time sort of had this idea that the Lao would go extinct and that the Lao race had to be saved. 
the French obviously were propagating this idea so that they could say the French had saved Laos from the Thai and things like that. The Lao were thinking about that because their country had been partitioned between Thailand and France in 1893. And, you know, there were Lao people living across all these different states, Laos, Thailand, Myanmar, Vietnam, parts of Cambodia as well. So, you know, they were thinking that they were just sort of being divided up. And then within what was called Laos, then from the 1930s, when French built these roads, colonial routes that opened up travel between Laos and Vietnam, then a lot of Vietnamese started coming in and then Laos began to complain about uh, feeling like second-class citizens in Laos and complain about Vietnamese domination. The Vietnamese made up 85% of Takak. They were over 50% of the population of Vinh Chan. So they were dominating the cities and they had more than 50% of the administrative jobs and they were dominating at the schools and the indigenous guard. So actually the French would racially discriminate against Lao for colonial era jobs and prefer hiring Vietnamese to hiring Lao for colonial jobs over the colonial administration at Laos. So quite a alarming situation for people at the time and affecting them in a personal way because, you know, these are the elite, they're trying to get these jobs and they're competing with Vietnamese and losing over and over and over. So I think all of this spurred nationalist thinking, but it became a major issue in the Cold War. I think all of these ideas from the colonial period came back with a vengeance during the Cold War era, especially as the Cold War conflict took shape and the communist movement in Laos initially was primarily Vietnamese. And then North Vietnam or the Democratic Republic of Vietnam became a major socialist state and was intervening in Laos. And so this really cast the Cold War in sort of ethnic terms for Lao and especially the Royal Lao government elites who were the leadership, who were deciding things and, and involved in outbreak of war and the U.S. bombing. They really saw things as a conflict between a Lao race, a Lao Thai race and a red communist Sino-Vietnamese race. This is something that came up a lot in their discussions and Royal Lao Army military officers talked about the Ho Chi Minh being a trail not to support the Democratic Republic of Vietnam's war on the Republic of Vietnam, but to colonize Laos in the wings of a conquering army. So this is something that is actually really striking, I think. And different Lao kings, King Sisavang Vong talked about in 1953, when the Vietnamese or the People's Army of Vietnam was within 30 kilometers of Luang Prabang, Sisavang Vong said, we beat the Vietnamese in 1479, we can do it again. So there were these very strong ways that people saw things. And his son, Savang Watana, the, the last king of Laos, would talk about how uh, you know Chinese and Vietnamese designs on Laos predated communism, and that communism was just like a pretext for this older desire to conquer Laos. So I think in a way, the Cold War in Laos was extremely influenced by Lao nationalism in ways that we haven't understood or appreciated. And Lao cultural understandings had a big role on what they were doing and thinking. It's so interesting, this part of the book, because I think when we think of Southeast Asian nationalism, we tend to think of it as being driven by you know, anti-colonial feeling uh, against you know the Western colonial powers. But here, I think it's absolutely clear the case that you make that there is this uh, strong sense of insecurity with you know Vietnamese domination, as you say. S sometimes this Lao nationalism could be rather excessive. 
you write that one prince argued that at Laos civilization dated back 4,000 years, well before the Europeans, the Lao had taught the Chinese rice farming. And I think yeah. he said they built the Great Wall of China, which is a stretchy yeah. little, little far. So I, I guess, could you say that the more extreme expressions of now nationalism kind of cover up a kind of insecurity about the, about the Lao nation? Yes. I mean, they were trying to answer back about European claims during the colonial period that Lao were inferior to Europeans. When Sananani Gon, actually one of the Itzala leaders who became a big person or an important politician in the Royal Lao period, he talked about getting into a fist fight with a French doctor who talked about how the he was a yellow-raced person who was inferior to the French and he was sent to exile in Samnia for seven years. So these things really influenced them. But I think they were trying to assert that Lao were not inferior to other people. It sometimes led to unrealistic things like they built the Great Wall, but it, I think, speaks to how they were seeing things at the time, for sure. If we talk about Lao nationalism and indeed Lao democracy, central to the emergence of these ideas was this pivotal political movement, which you talk about in the book, the Lao Itzara. Can you tell us about the Lao Itzara and why they are so important to understanding modern Lao history? Yeah, I think previously people hadn't really thought that the Lao Itzara were very important. They took power in October 1945 after World War II. This was a time where there was sort of a gap and the French control of Laos, the Japanese had forced the French out of power on March 9th, 1945, at the tail end of the World War II. And, and the French were trying to come back to Laos to recolonize Laos to reassert colonial authority. And there was this group, the Lao Itzala, who tried to resist the return of French colonialism. And the way they did that was to declare independence, to promulgate a constitution and to create a national assembly uh, legislature. They did this all in one day on October 12, 1945. So to me, this really sets the whole course of modern Lao history on its way because ever since October 12, 1945, every government in Laos has been some kind of a democracy and claimed to be a democracy of some sort, whether that's liberal democracy or socialist democracy. And all of these governments are based on popular sovereignty, on ruling in the name of the Lao people and for the benefit of the Lao people. All of that really started with the Lao Itzala. And not widely known, they also were the first to have an election they had it February of 1946 by telegram in a few of the cities they still controlled before conquering French armies. But I think it really speaks to the level that they were devoted to establishing a liberal democracy. I think what's important about the Lao Itzala and unique is that most places in Southeast Asia or Asia where liberal democracy was established, it was done by colonial powers so that they could sort of extend their rule. The British did it in India, the Americans did it in the Philippines, and Japan as well. But in Laos, it was not. The French didn't establish democracy. The Lao King didn't establish democracy. It was this Lao Itzala movement, and they, they were doing it as a profoundly anti-colonial movement to claim independence, to claim sovereignty, to say, we can rule ourselves. We don't have to have French rule. And so I think that was extremely important. But I think they were very much committed to liberal democracy. I think, you know, people have known for a long time that they set up a democracy, but 
they didn't really take it seriously. But I think if you look at what they were writing about, thinking about, talking about in this time, they were really serious. They had, you know, studied in France. They had seen democracy and work in France. They had this French education that sort of valorized the French Revolution. And, you know, they also had the example of the Thai 1932 revolution as well. And the Lao Itzala, they were involved with Thai from the northeast of Thailand, the Isan area. So some members of the Lao Itzala actually had a role in the 1932 revolution in Thailand. So, you know, there were all these connections and influences. If we can move on to the second of the big ideas that you discuss in the book, anti-communism. And you write that it's an understudied subject in Lao history and to a certain extent in Southeast Asian history as well. I think when compared to studies of communism, for example, you argue that Laos had a strong anti-communist tradition. And this is important that homegrown Lao anti-communism actually predated US influence from about, I think that about mid-1950s. So can you explain to the listeners why anti-communism was, was so popular amongst the Lao elite in the 1940s and the 1950s, and also perhaps what was maybe distinctive about the Lao version of anti-communism? Yes, that's one of the surprising things that I didn't know before I started the study, that there were Lao writing about anti-communism in 1948, in December 1948, before the founding of the People's Republic of China, before the outbreak of the Korean War. So I think pretty early in the Cold War, and who was writing about anti-communism at this time? Of course, it was the Lao Itzala. They were in exile in Bangkok. The French had reconquered Laos, recolonized it. They had forced the Lao Itzala government into exile in Thailand. So the people writing about anti-communism, they didn't have any foreign patron. They were enemies of France. They had no formal relations with the United States or the UK. And they had had some support from Preeti Phnom Young in Thailand, but he was forced out in a coup in November 1947. And so this came a year later in December 1948 that they wrote this anti-communist tract. So it was not really try to please the Thai. And even the way that Lao write the word communist, it's spelled differently than in Thai, if you look at it. So I think it's more influenced by French, but the Lao Itzala, they were all cognizant. They knew French. And when they were writing this anti-communist pamphlet, they were citing French sources. They were citing people who had given up socialism and who had suffered under Stalin's rule in the Soviet Union. And so their rejection of communism was based on this understanding of the Soviet Union under Stalin and the terrible atrocities committed under Stalin, you know, the show trials of the 1930s, and they did not want, they rejected communism because they thought of it as, you know, leading to political violence, land reform, class warfare, and they just did not want that for Laos. And that's what they wrote about in this pamphlet. They also said in 1948 that Laos should be an anti-communist base allied with the United States. Um, and this is before the United States was giving aid to Laos, of course, which even if they were giving aid to Laos, it didn't matter because this person was in exile in Bangkok. But it was also, you know, before the U.S. even officially recognized Laos. So I think it's something that's really interesting. Most people are aware that Lao neutralism was an influential stance among Lao that the U.S. eventually took up under John F. Kennedy. But not a lot of people are aware that Lao were also adamant about 
Laos being an anti-communist base allied with the United States, most people think that was a U.S. idea imposed on Laos. But actually, there's evidence to suggest that Laos were also talking about that. But what I think is important is, so there was this earlier decade, most people talk about Laos anti-communism from 1954 after the U.S. shows up and suggests that anti-communism was sort of brought to Laos from the U.S. whole cloth and the Laos just were receivers of it. And I think it was actually quite different. They had already been developing their own ideas about anti-communism back into the 1940s, and they had their own reasons to do that separate from the United States. And I was based on defense of tradition, the nation, the monarchy, defense of Buddhism. And so this first Lao anti-communist tract talked about Lao being naturally immune to communism, the communist virus, because Lao had their tradition, their society, their, their culture, which would all make them never become communists, and especially their belief in Buddhism. They could never believe in such a empty materialist idea like communism. That was the idea. What's interesting is Arthur Delman in his book, The Indo-Chinese Experience from 2001, he actually cites... U.S. diplomatic sources from 1949, where the U.S. is communicating with Supernuvong, and Supernuvong actually even says that Laos is never going to be communists. So this was a really widespread idea at the time, but people didn't necessarily think that Laos might be communist, not through persuasion, but through force, through the conquest of a foreign army. So that became more of an idea in the 1950s when there was more conflict between the states of the Democratic Republic of Vietnam and the Royal Lao government. On the subject of anti-communism, we've already, you mentioned the Lao Isra. We should also mention this other very important group, the Batet Lao, who eventually succeed in seizing power in 1975. Who were the Batet Lao and why were they eventually successful despite the prevalence of anti-communism in, in Laos? Well, Communism began in, in Laos, as far as we know, in the 1930s after the Great Depression. This is based on Jeffrey Gunn's research into the French Surete, the security services, and also McAllister, Brown, and Zaslav. Uh, they also use the same French Surete sources to sort of find the first examples of communism in Laos. And interestingly, they found it mainly among the Vietnamese living in Laos cities and, and the Lao mines, and also among this large Vietnamese population that was in Northeast Thailand, right across the river, which you know Christopher Gosha's research has pointed to as being this area that was developing since the 1880s as sort of an anti-French community, people from Vietnam who had fled French colonial rule, who had to escape all the way to Thailand because the French also colonized Laos. So there was this nascent communist movement in, in Laos, but it was having trouble reaching the Lao. There was maybe one or two members that were actually ethnic Lao. Then during 1945, the Vietnamese ICP in Laos, they also became active with the Lao Itala, and they were actually allied with the Lao Itala. It was an unstable alliance, but they did make a treaty actually in October 30th, 1945 with the Democratic Republic of Vietnam. So they were fighting the French together, allied together. But when the uh, Lao Itala were defeated by the French in May 1946, you know, that's when the Democratic Republic of Vietnam started looking towards creating its own movement separate from the Lao Itala, and the Lao Itala were sort of 
you know, not necessarily seeing eye to eye with things, then it would be a lot easier to just have their own movement that was more pliable. And, you know, they had these Lao Itala who were in the Lao-Vietnamese borderland areas and who had fled into Vietnam to escape the French recontest and recolonization. So those people became part of the Batet Lao, which was formed in 1950. There was an earlier movement, the Lao Itala Committee of the East, uh, that was formed in October 1946 in Vin, but this was involving Lao, who had some Vietnamese heritage or connection. Gai Son Pong Vi Han was, uh, his father was a Vietnamese civil servant working in Vieng Chan, and Nuhak Pum Soan was someone who ran this bus line to Saigon from Laos. So these people were connected with Vietnam and gained prominence. And then they linked up with Supanuvong, who broke with the Lao Itala because the Lao Itala made an amnesty with the French in 1949, so they returned from exile from Thailand to Laos, and they went on to take high positions, including prime minister, for most of the rest of the royal Lao government period. But Supanuvong did not make peace with the French and continued fighting against the French with this new Patet Lao movement that was working very closely with the Democratic Republic of Vietnam. And they were a powerful ally, certainly, because they had this burgeoning military power and they were able to eventually defeat the French at the end of the first French-Indochina War. And then they continued to be involved in Laos after that. To be fair, I guess, to the Batet Lao, they seem to be quite progressive party, at least in the 50s. they I think you're right that they won the right to vote for women. And yes. they strongly advocated for Laos ethnic minorities who made up a large proportion of Laos population. So... If, if I'd been living in Laos in the 1950s, for example, I probably would have voted for the Batetla with, with that uh, policy right. agenda. That's what I thought as well. Yes, uh, going back to their founding, they advocated for a number of things. They advocated for getting rid of the French, which is understandable. They advocated for complete independence. They thought that the independence that the Lao Itala were celebrating in 1950 was an incomplete independence because the French were still there. There were still hundreds of French advisors. The French Union Army was still there. So they wanted complete independence. But they also talked about democratic freedoms, individual liberties, mm. freedom of speech, freedom of the press. Uh, this was all in 1950. And again, it was when the Patet Lao created a political party in 1956. They had all these platforms as well. They also talked about ethnic equality, which considering that ethnic Lao in Laos make up less than 50% of the population, that's extraordinarily important. And I think a lot of the sort of nationalist ideas that Lao were interested in was really Lao-centric, and it didn't leave much space for people who were not ethnic Lao. So you know, it sort of left out people in this really incredibly ethnically diverse country. It, in some ways, I think, would marginalize other uh, non-ethnic Lao peoples. And that was something the Patet Lao were speaking to. But I think what was really interesting is how the Patet Lao uh, expanded to liberal democracy in 1958 by winning women the right to vote. They overturned this restrictive electoral system that the Lao elite had in which people did not have a direct vote. They had to go through an electoral college and they were not voting in secret and wasn't universal suffrage. It was only men. So the Patet Lao demanded universal suffrage. So they won women the right to vote. They also demanded uh, secret ballots and direct balloting. So really the 1958 election was the most democratic in Lao history, but it was also 
marred by violence because of tensions and conflict between the Patet Lao and the Royal Lao government parties. And I think that's something that really speaks to issues with democracy anywhere in the world. There are these questions of can liberal democracy sublimate all of the social tensions? Can it contain all of the social tensions? And we like to think that democracy can peacefully resolve our conflicts through an election. But on the other hand, if it's a close election like it was, and the Patet Lao did very well in the 1958 election, they won two-thirds of the seats upper grabs with one-third of the vote. And so there was an incredible level of competition between the Patet Lao and the Royal Lao government parties. And, you know, when there's this close contest actually seems to have not, you know, peacefully resolved things, but actually pushed and spurred violence. Uh, there's accounts of violence during the 1958 election, assassinations, and actually Supa Nuvong, the leader of the Patet Lao, said in February 1959, just a few months before the outbreak of the Second Indochina War in Laos, if you don't stop this, then this will lead to war. So I think the liberal democracy in some ways sparked conflict and war. It didn't resolve tensions peacefully in Laos. And I think that's a bigger problem. I think people would say, well, well, the Lao, they didn't, they didn't know what they were doing with a democracy. They weren't doing it right. But I think actually that may be something that is a part of any democracy any, anywhere in the world, that there is this possibility for it to lead to violence rather than peacefully resolving conflicts. So that was something I was not expecting to find, but I think it's very powerful in some ways. One of the things I really liked in this book, it's a book about ideas, it's an intellectual history, but it also, you give these portraits of these kind of larger-than-life figures that dominate the political landscape of, of Laos in the Cold War period. And one of these guys was the the famous uh, so-called Red Prince, uh, Supanavong, and you mentioned him a couple of times. Can you tell the listeners a bit more about this remarkable figure and his role in Lao politics at this time? Yeah, he was, you know, an incredibly brilliant person, uh, one of the first Lao to go study in France and graduated from this really elite university in France and returned to find that there was no job in Laos. He had to take a job, a low-level job in Vietnam. And so he lived several years in Vietnam. And, you know, at the time he became married. So he spent several years in Vietnam and by marrying a Vietnamese woman, he became closer to Vietnamese culture and language, I think, than he might otherwise have. And when World War II ended, he went to Hanoi and he met with Ho Chi Minh. And when he went to Laos in October 1945, it was at the head of this Democratic Republic of Vietnam delegation that was seeking to make an alliance with the Lao Itzala. And so he became this crucial nexus between Laos and Vietnam, Laos and the Democratic Republic of Vietnam. And so he was extremely influential, but he was also someone who was very charismatic and he was a real popular face of the Batet Lao. And he was someone who could get along with common people. So that, I think that was very effective and it helped popularize them. If we could move on to talk about the the third of the big ideas you discuss in the book, democracy, and your book presents, I think, really a remarkable picture of the development of liberal democracy between 1945 until 1975. And I think many readers will be surprised at how sophisticated the Lao understanding of democracy was and how it was able to survive 
for almost 30 years. Can, can you tell us about the development of this flourishing democracy? Yeah, sure. I, I mentioned one of the unique things about Lao democracy that it was established by Lao themselves, not by a colonial power. So there were still people who would talk about it as foreign. There were others who would say that actually, no, Lao or democracy is not foreign, it's universal. It didn't begin in France or the United States in the 18th century. It's always been a part of human history. Yoy Apai said that in December 1953, on the fifth anniversary of the UN Declaration of Human Rights. So as you say, there was this deeper engagement with democracy in Laos. And it really started with the Lao Itzala. They introduced a constitution, and the constitution placed the legislature, the National Assembly, over the king. So that was something unusual, I think but also important. But the constitution gave Lao for the first time political and civil rights, the freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of belief, and the rule of law and, you know, suffrage as well. And so, you know, it really introduced a lot of fundamental values. But I think one of the things that is surprising perhaps is how democracy survived. The Lao Itzala were in power for less than a year and they were forced into exile. So how did democracy survive after they were forced out? And I think it's because once they opened the Pandora's box of democracy in Laos, the French and those loyal to the French among the Lao, they couldn't put this genie back in the bottle. So they kept and maintained the liberal democracy the Itzala created. They made it more favorable to the king, of course, but still it survived under them. And I think that's actually so remarkable. And so the May 11th, 1947 constitution was never discarded before 1975. And of course it derived, I would say, from the Lao Itzala. But, you know, it's unusual, I think, in a Southeast Asian country that they have this history of amending a constitution, not throwing it out. It's quite distinct, I think, from Thailand, of course, where they throw out constitutions quite often. It's just part of the story. There was a free press and civil society that was also part of it. And I think one of the things that was strong about Lao democracy in ways that you wouldn't expect is that there were opposition parties that were important, such that even they were sort of the kingmakers at times because larger parties couldn't form a government on their own. So they needed these smaller parties. And I think that's another feature about Lao democracy that's unusual is that it was more than one political party in India it was just one political party or, you know, Singapore is just one political party. But in Laos, there were many different parties and always new political parties developing. Of course, liberal democracy doesn't solve everything. It entrenched the elites in power. It prevented some major changes. If there was a socialist communist revolution, they would have remade the whole society. Liberal democracy was not going to do that. It was a lot more conservative and re-entrenching the powers that be. But as the Royal Lao government promoted education and more and more people became educated, I think there were different forces that were challenging the existing elite. Santipop was one party in 1955 and 1958. That was the Peace's Neutrality Party, or the Neutralist Party. There were other parties as well, including the Movement for a New Way Party in 1972. And so there were different parties. And I think one aspect that's interesting about Lao democracy is that there was never a dictatorship that established itself in Laos. 
And that seems contradictory because Laos was involved in this huge war, but actually Pumi Nosovan was the most credible thing that anyone could say as a dictator, but he failed to establish a dictatorship. And so many other countries in Southeast Asia did have a dictatorship, including Thailand. So why did this fail? And I would say because there was this existing liberal democracy, there was an alternative to dictatorship. And liberal democracy had been around longer than the Royal Lao Army. So I think that played a role in things. But Laos was in a precarious position between the Cold War on the border of the free world and the communist world. So in in some ways, they thought that having a dictatorship would be provocative. But also the Royal Lao Army was too weak to establish Mm -hmm. a liberal democracy, weak and fragmented. And so after Pumi Nosovan was exiled, Lao democracy had a, a low point. Certainly the, there was violence during the 1958 elections. War broke out between the Pat Lao and the Royal Lao government in May of 1959. And so by 1960, when there were general elections, this was run by the Royal Lao army as the country was engulfed in war. So there's nothing that is a very low point for Lao democracy, I think, where there's this war raging and uh, Pathet Lao members are sitting in jail who are running for election. It's just a, an example of how war had damaged and distorted democracy. But in 1965, the Royal Lao government actually was able to revive democracy as uh, Pumi Nosovan was falling from power. And so it had another 10 years from 1965 to 1975 in which there was restored democracy. It started with a very small election in 1965, but in 1967, there was an election with universal suffrage. And in 1972, this was the last election in which there was a a free and open election in which 800,000 people came out to vote. Yeah, this section of the book is, it's so refreshing to read some of the speeches from this time, because I guess we're familiar, you know, more recently with conservative arguments about, you know, whether democracy is suitable for Southeast Asian traditions. And you quote, you know, speech after speech by Lao leaders, you know, arguing that democracy was not in fact a Western invention, but was a universal value. And it, it just sounds so progressive and so contemporary. So the background to all of this, of course, is the escalating war in Indochina. But even here, I think your argument comes through in an interesting way. Now, anyone, of course, who knows anything about the history of Laos during the Cold War will know about the infamous US bombing of Laos and the so-called secret war. And, you know, this has been regarded as one of the, the darkest episodes of the US involvement in Indochina. But you kind of take your argument about Lao agency in this period, you know, <laughs> maybe not to an extreme, you take it a long way by claiming that the, the, the Royal Lao government was actually closely involved in that bombing campaign, was strongly supportive of it, and even helped direct it. And I think you claim that, I think there was one uh, US official who claimed that the Lao Prime Minister at the time, Silvana Puma, who was a, ironically, a, a neutralist politician, he was quote, unquote, gung-ho about the bombing campaign. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit more about you know, the role of the rural Lao government in this so-called secret war in Laos? Yeah. I mean, this is really the case study for Lao agency that I'm trying to make in the Cold War, I think, in this chapter. But, you know, it's something that I did not know I would find when I was starting this research, and I was surprised as well. But, you know, there's actually a lot to back it up. The bombing of Laos was undertaken by Prime Minister Suama Puma, 
he was the prime minister. He was also the minister of defense at the time after 1962. He had a lot of power in his hands, but he was a neutralist. He was hoping to avoid war. He was hoping to bring about reconciliation with the Patitlao. He was crucial and instrumental in negotiating the various peace and ceasefires with the Patitlao. The first coalition government between the Royal Lao government and the Patet Lao, which formed in 1957 and lasted to 1958. Suwana Puma was central to that, and he negotiated with the Patet Lao leader, Supanuvong, who was his half-brother. And they again negotiated a second coalition government in 1962 when there was this big international conference in Geneva to neutralize Laos. It was a 14-nation conference in which it was really trying to bring together the different parties to say that Laos was neutral and to leave it out of the conflict that it was embroiled in. But unfortunately, this failed. And how Suwana Puma came to the realization that, that neutralism had failed and that he had to pursue war, I think is something that is profound and it has a huge influence on Laos today and as much as the U.S. bombing of Laos has had a huge influence. And you know, when I argue that he was involved with the U.S. bombing campaign, I think we should be clear that this doesn't diminish the U.S. role. The U.S. is not, not responsible. The U.S. is very much responsible for the U.S. bombing campaign. Obviously, it was all U.S. military planes, and the U.S. certainly could have said no to Suwana's request for this. So they're not uninvolved in any way. They're deeply involved as much as anyone would say. But what I am concerned with is when people talk about things and they don't talk about the Royal Lao government, they talk about things as though the Royal Lao government doesn't exist, and it's just the U.S. fighting against the Patet Lao, and there is no Royal Lao government. What I'm concerned about is is erasing Lao from their own history. And I think that sometimes we are too U.S.-centric, too Eurocentric when we look at 20th century Lao history. It's a big problem, I think, that I try to address with the work. But Suwana Puma, he had in the past had more warlike takes on things. And that became evident when he was prime minister in 1953, in March of 1953, when the People's Army of Vietnam marched to within 30 kilometers of Luang right when the Lao New Year was taking place. And all the Lao elite were in Luang with the king for the Lao New Year, and they were 30 kilometers from this giant People's Army of Vietnam campaign, our military force. And, you know, at the time, Suwana Puma gave this very fiery speech in which he called for Lao to fight to the death to defend the nation. And it's not something, it doesn't sound like the Suwana Puma we're familiar with and that we know. So it's almost kind of jarring to see him talk in these ways. But if you're the prime minister and you're facing this army coming from abroad, and I think anyone in that position would think about national defense and trying to take whatever means were necessary. You know, war and bombing was not his first choice. But by May of 1964, he gradually begins to see that there is no way to negotiate out of this. The 1962 agreements had failed. He was trying to call another international conference, but the Russians were ignoring him. The North Vietnamese were ignoring him. He made a trip to Hanoi and Beijing in April of 1964, one month before he authorized the U.S. bombing. And he said, look, this may be the last time 
that I make this request for peace. And if this fails, we can respond with extreme violence. And so he was sort of warning them that he was thinking about it. And U.S. diplomats who were talking to him, the U.S. ambassador, Leonard Unger, was really closely involved with him as he was changing and starting to see that negotiations had failed. And he was also really influenced by the neutralist forces as well, which he was close to, dating back to the Gong Lei coup of 1960. And he was concerned that they were being attacked and denied supplies and being subverted by Patat Lao forces who were trying to break the neutralists into different factions. And so he wanted to defend the neutralist forces, which were allied with him. And the Patat Lao were gradually doing these nibbling attacks from 1962 to 1964. But mid-May of 1964, they take control of the Plain of Jars, which is this crucial area that you can attack both Luangpabang and Vientiane very quickly. So it's of strategic importance, but it was also where the neutralist forces were. They had to flee out of the Plain of Jars into other territory. So this is sort of the thing that pushes Suwanapuma to finally say, okay, yes, I'm going to request military aid. I'm going to request bombing. And this is something... The U.S. didn't initially realize that this would be anything more than a few weeks of bombing. But as things progressed, Swanapuma kept asking for more and more, and they said, yes, we can bomb. Swanapuma made the request for U.S. bombing May 20th, 1964, and the U.S. bombing began in the next day, May 21st. And it began under secrecy with U.S. pilots piloting Royal Lao Air Force T-28s. This was not using U.S. Air Forces, but as the North Vietnamese or the, the People's Army of Vietnam was putting greater and greater military pressure on the Royal Lao government and Royal Lao Army forces, I think uh, Suwana was seeing that he needed to rely on this more and more to save the Royal Lao Army, which was so outmatched against the People's Army of Vietnam. And so the initial area that he agreed to bombing was focused on the Plain of Jars, which was really about saving the Royal Lao government, saving the Kingdom of Laos. It was not about interdicting the Ho Chi Minh Trail. That was for the U.S. interest. He just wanted to stop the forces that were threatening the Royal Lao government zones and areas of control. And the Royal Lao Army forces were flagging on their own. They couldn't do it. And when President Johnson was talking about doing this, he said, he met with his cabinet, and he's on the record in this military U.S. Air Force history as saying that everyone agreed that we need Suwana's permission. And another U.S. ambassador, William Sullivan, who worked closely with Suwana over this, he said, U.S. military objectives are going to have to fit with Lao national interests as interpreted by Suwana. So from the record that I have seen, the U.S. officials, U.S. ambassadors, even the U.S. presidents, saw that Suwanapuma's request and approval and permission was essential. And in fact, as far as things go day to day, he would work with the U.S. ambassador, at first Leonard Unger, but then William Sullivan, and they would pick out targets. They established rules of engagements. Suwana was involved in training, logistics, what airfield, what munitions, what planes were used, and every step of the way, he was supporting it. And even when there were civilian casualties, when Royal Lao Army forces were shot through friendly fire or something, or, you know, a bus full of women and children was bombed, 
even so, Suwanapuma went as on the record as saying, we need this. And also the kings of Anwatana, he said the same thing. They're on the record as saying, we need this. It has to continue. These, these mistakes are regrettable. We have to uh, avoid them. They talked about bringing people out of the bombing zones to relocate people out of the areas of danger. And so they may have been involved in creating this mass exodus of you know, 700,000 people eventually who become refugees. I'm not sure yet if that was unplanned or intentional or if people are just fleeing the bombing zones on their own to what extent. But it was all with the war in mind and with beating back the DRV and the Patet Lao forces. Eventually, they did approve uh, bombing the Ho Chi Minh Trail, but it was always secondary. And Suwana, throughout, maintained a secrecy. He wanted to maintain his status as a neutral leader. He wanted independent support, but he was also a rival with Supanuvong for leadership of the neutral forces. So, you know, if he was openly supporting this U.S. bombing, or if it wasn't a secret, then his credibility as a neutralist would be destroyed which was also why he was prime minister for so long, because he was a neutralist. So for all of these reasons, he insisted on the secrecy. U.S. officials said, this is impossible. We can't keep a major bombing campaign secret. You know, there's civilian aviators, there's witnesses in Vingchen and elsewhere, and then there's communist news organizations. We can't possibly keep this a secret. But Suwana forced them to, to the point that William Sullivan said, Suwana is making me act like the DRV ambassador and just lie and cover it up. No matter how obvious it is that this is going on, we just have to lie. And then later in 1968 or 1969, Suwana Puma, Arthur Doman has a citation of Suwana Puma telling the Russians diplomat that Suwana Puma was responsible for the bombing of Laos. And my advisor, Alfred McCoy, was involved with this Lao Warson Revolution book that was written in 1970. And uh, as part of that book, some progressive Americans went to interview Suwana Puma, and they said he was a savage, voluntary right-winger. So, you know, they tried to talk yeah. to him about the bombing, and he said, oh, there's no Lao people being bombed. It's just North Vietnamese mm -hmm. soldiers. So they were really shocked. They did not realize what they would encounter when they talked to Suwana. It's so ironic that the you know the famous secret war in Laos was was made, made secret in large part, obviously not entirely, but large part by the the Lao Prime Minister himself. And I think this part of the book is so fascinating because once you shift your historiographical vantage point to focus on Lao agency, your your kind of understanding of this event just changes, or, or is, maybe not changes, but it's expanded. Because of course, the Royal Lao government they're fighting for their existence, they're fighting for their survival. And I think in one place you say that Savannah Puma referred to it as a war of racial extermination. And, you know, I guess when the stakes are that high, you do whatever it takes to try and win win the war. That was just a, an unexpected find I found in the, the official press. There's so many gems in the official press. There's so much sources that are mm. unused, unread, unstudied. So there's so many more things we can find. But, you know, on May 16th, 1964, five days before the U.S. bombing campaign began, the Royal Lao Government Press reported a story about the war of racial extinction to the east of the Plain of Jars and, you know, what race is being exterminated. You know, they don't say, but it's it's clearly the Lao race. And the news story talks about 4,000 Lao civilians being killed by North Vietnamese soldiers 
and they were either shot or given poison pills, according to the reporting, and over 500 Royal Lao Army soldiers were missing. And this was basically accusing the North Vietnamese forces in Laos of genocide. So it's something that's shocking. Yes. But, you know, if, if Swan is thinking about starting this bombing campaign, I'm sure it, it entered into his consideration, his decision to ultimately take this action. Sadly, uh, we're starting to run out of time. I know your book, it's very new, but one of the questions I always like to ask guests is whether they've had any feedback from the academics of the country they're writing about. So in your case, have you had any feedback from your Lao informants and colleagues about the book, about its argument, about its contents? Well, I've heard from Lao living in the diaspora. So I've heard from Lao diaspora in Australia and the United States. I have not heard from Lao that I know in Laos. So I would be interested to see what they say. But yes, from what I've heard from Lao in the United States or in Australia, they did seem to enjoy it. Not everyone likes it. Some people certainly have their criticisms, but I think, you know, that's healthy. We don't have to agree. We can have more than one account and vantage point on this. And I think it's actually, it's healthy. It's productive. It's vital really to have more than one perspective especially on such a dramatic time where there's so much going on. Absolutely. So you've come to the end of one project. Do you have another project in the works? I haven't started yet, but I was thinking about writing about the Lao revolution of 1975. I think it would be interesting. You know, there's some sources that I've found that I would be interested in looking at and sort of the ideas of it. But I'm also interested in counts of people sent to re-education camps as well. So I'm not sure, but that's one thing I was thinking about. We are out of time. So Ryan Wolfson Ford, thank you very much for joining us on this episode of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss your new book, Forsaken Causes, Liberal Democracy and Anti-Communism in Cobble Laos. It's published by University of Wisconsin Press this year. And you've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And if you're interested in this new field of historiography, new Cold War studies in Southeast Asia, I'd really recommend listening to some of our other podcasts on this subject. For example, Sinead Hyun's Indigenizing the Cold War, the Border Patrol Police and Nation Building in Thailand, published by University of Hawaii Press in 2023 or Nguyen Tran's Disunion, Anti-Communist Nationalism and the Making of the Republic of Vietnam, also published by University of Hawaii Press in 2022. And you can download or stream these interviews and lots, lots more free of charge via the New Books Network website or iTunes.